previously on Storyological. <laughs> so, of oh, where's Anderson, Susan? Where's Anderson? <laughs> where's Anderson? It's like where's Wally, but it's like find uh, the find the suited man. Yeah. Where's Waldo? Well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Please. yeah, sure. Wes is American, so we can give him that. Yeah. Yeah. Where's Anderson? <laughs> I mean, to be fair. And by to be fair, I mean to give ourselves a lot of credit、uh-huh. for this thing we just made up. There is a certain、uh, fashionable look、mm. about a lot of Wes Anderson films that I don't think it would be too crazy to create a coffee table book called <laughs> "Where's Anderson" that just features Wes Anderson in funny little red and white striped shirts <laughs> tucked away in very carefully、right. Wes Anderson designed、uh, color palettes of things. I would be into that because a lot of his movies feature people in those little red bobble hats. You know, they're a big part of the、I、life mean, of Gothic, and、yeah. also the narrator wears one in、uh, the what? Moon, the narrator wears one in Moonrise Kingdom. That's the name of the guy who <laughs> does the introduction. Yes, yes,、stuff. I know Bob Balaban. He's great. I'm just enjoying the way that you、um, stress that word. Yeah. How do you say it? Narrator, <laughs> like a minotaur. <laughs> This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud, and I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Rarely、uh, suffixed with a junior these days. That's what happens when you eclipse your father. Good job, <laughs> Kurt. Kurt Vonnegut is someone that I have read for a long time. Ah,、uh, he he means a lot to me. <laughs> What are you saying that like like that for? <laughs> I don't know. Like,、um, readers, let me tell you, Kurt Vonnegut means everything to Chris. Yes. Do Do you have evidence for this statement? Um. Well, you know, when we met and started seeing each other, and then had to be parted into different countries for many months. What you gave me was your most precious copy of Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, my dad was in、uh, hospice, and、uh, there was a period of time. Where when I was going back and forth to spend time with him at the hospice, I always carried Slaughterhouse Five in my back pocket. <laughs> like、and、this, then, this is the way to deal with trauma. Ah,、uh, yeah, yeah. I think the the other day you you described reading Kurt Vonnegut as having your soul scraped clean, and I thought that was very apt. There's something so bracing about his writing. That whatever barnacles you're carrying with you in your life, he just <laughs>、yes. scrapes them all off. You are polished new, man. You are ready to go. And also, kind of raw and in possibly in a great deal of pain. I mean, I mean, I'd rather be that than than calcified and numb. Yeah, which is what I think Vonnegut is a bit of a cure for. So Harrison Bergeron、uh, begins like this: The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution, and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's fourteen-year-old son Harrison away. So Vonnegut,、uh, he writes things that are called sci-fi, and they are sci-fi. This takes place in the future, but he—I feel like he—he he comes from a line of like Voltaire and Austin. He is writing comedies of manners, really dark, black, 
comedies of manners. Yeah, dark <laughs> black. black. Uh-uh. Not just a black comedy. It's a dark black. Yeah. And you know now Saunders, I feel like, is someone that has quite um, self-identifies as a Vonnegut person. That he feels like he's picked up that baton early in his life, and I, I think he's gone his own way with it. Mm-hmm. But that was where he started. And I, I love reading this story and thinking about Sea Oak. And there's something about the rhythm of those early Saunders story that you can you can hear in Harrison Bergeron, I think, in particular. And it's one of the reasons why I think it sticks with me. There's something urgent and pressing about it. What happens in the story is you have George and Hazel who are watching TV, as you do. And everybody in this world has various handicaps that have been added to their life in a way that really seems less about being just and more about being vindictive. Because <laughs> yeah. if if you are beautiful, you get a much more hideous mask. You don't just get an average mask. No, uh-uh. you don't just get an average mask. And it's so clearly ineffective because often people get stronger the more they put on them. So they have to keep putting more. And you can feel that some amount of the ineffectiveness of this system uh, adds to the vindictiveness of it. That, that's why it goes on. And I... And so this world, it's Vonnegut's playground. He's not really interested in making believe how this world would work exactly because it's not meant to be a realistic political dystopia. It's its its own kind of fairy tale. And George and Hazel watch on TV as Harrison, their son who was taken away, has escaped from prison, shows up at this concert of ballerinas and classical musical performers, uh, and announces himself as taking over. And stuff happens (laughs) i love that you started off by referencing george saunders because i felt that that link so deeply in this and i love how they they seem to come at satire in the same kind of way that they take an idea or a word or a concept that that people either ascribe to or hate thoughtlessly and they just kind of run at it full tilt. <laughs> like, yes. okay, get ready, guys. Yeah. This is what the world would be like. So here you've got you've got the word equality and what does it mean? And, and I can imagine in 1961, maybe this came from a place of people fighting against equality because they were afraid that actually what it meant is they would be done down. They would be reduced in their standing in the world. And, and so he just kind of, picks that up and runs with it and it's like okay this is the world you're painting do you do you now see how ridiculous you are and and it links so closely to me to uh the brief and frightening reign of phil by george saunders and that is a an international dispute between the big hornerites and the little hornerites the little hornerites country is only big enough for three people to stand in and the the big hornerites charge them tax every time one of their appendages or feet or something falls over the line and it's again vindictively enforced phil the leader of the big hornerites uh, grows this cult around him that people start to believe in the way the way he describes the world as it is is he persuades them it is as it must be and that they kind of follow him into this place of insanity and i love the way that both of those stories paint in this insanity a kind of picture of well this is what happens to you if you don't engage with how you want the world to work right you must be part of your world in order for it to work in a way that is not as hideous as this yeah i think saunders and vonnegut both excel at writing stories that can 
piss everyone off. Yes. Um, <laughs> there's nobody. There's nobody there that goes. Oh, this fully supports my point of view. Uh, yeah, totally. Because you could, you can totally read the story. Uh, because I imagine the Disabilities Act. I don't really know what year it came out, but it would have come out around this time. Communism was happening with the idea of of spreading the wealth and making everyone equal in some mm-hmm. plane, and a lot of people were writing against that. You you can read it from that point of view that he's criticizing. Uh, um, a superficial view of, of equality. That's why it gets assigned in school a lot is because it just has a big neon sign on it that you can ask people to write about. What do you think about equality? What does it mean? What's the cost? Do we really want everyone to be equal? What do we mean when we say equality? Uh, and that interests me when I read the story. I love having that jostled around in my head. Like you said, like he's a rhinoceros that has taken aim at something and he just runs into the shop and destroys everything and you're left in the mess. But it's not, it's not why I love it. I love it because the satirist and Kurt, the, the thing that people describe as dark, the thing that they describe him as bleak is only useful <laughs> because he writes and seems to come from such a disillusioned state that you know that he is desperately in love with romance and poetry and beauty and he his stories wrestle with it in this way that I find gorgeous. There's a moment in this story that has always stayed with me uh, and this moment is when Harrison has, has broken into this concert hall. The ballerines are there. He's made himself emperor. He's called forth any ballerinas who will join him and be his empress and just tear off their mask and join him. And she does. And they begin to dance together. And at that point, Vonnegut just, he just fucks it all. He's just whatever. There are no rules anymore. And it says, in an explosion of joy and grace into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. Oh, and I remember when I first hit that line, they leaped like deer on the moon, where I was like, oh, there's something special happening in this story. There's something about that image that felt so perfect. And what happens after it that is so tragic when they fall, when they get shot down, that's, that's what makes it work. If there wasn't that bit of romance to it, that bit of poetry, the bleakness would be empty. It would be meaningless. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. But I kind of disagree in feeling like he's in love with beauty. I really feel like, I feel like what he gets is the shape of a story, how it must go in order to feel in order to wrench a feeling out of the out of the reader and in fact there's a youtube there's video of on youtube of him kind of graphing out shapes of stories it's it's delightful but in that video he talks or he he goes across a bunch of different stories and they all end in this upward swing of like at the end everything is brilliant you know cinderella achieves infinite happiness when she when she finds her prince but I can't help feeling like if Kurt Vonnegut wrote his version of Cinderella, the prince would have syphilis and also a penchant for domestic abuse. Like this story ends in a terrible, terrible way. After the moon, after the two people dance on the ceiling, the director general, no, what's her name? The handicapper general. The handicapper general shoots them out of the sky and then they are dead before they hit the floor. And that, to me, is so much about his his 
perspective on life that anything beautiful will be destroyed. Well, it will. And so I guess that's where I get, I guess, you know, I can see where you're coming from. In order to care that beautiful things are destroyed, you have to love them and, and think that they're important. And yet I feel like n- nothing I have ever read of Vonnegut's has left me with a sense that there is beauty in the world mm. or is anything worth saving. It, I always come away with this sense of the exact opposite, that that the earth is full of scum who will <laughs> burn anything good before before it achieves its uh, full potential. In Cat's Cradle, there is one of the verses from the Books of Bokanon, I believe, goes something along the lines of, after, after studying the history of humans for the last 3,000 years, here's what I can say about the hope I have for humanity. And then it's just a blank page after that. It's <laughs> yes. just, it just stopped. Um, oh, no, I, so crushing. I, I hear you. And, and the, what I, I think Vonnegut could not be so crushing unless he understood intimately the illusions that he was dismantling. And so I'm, I'm with you that he might have lost all of those illusions. He might believe, in fact, that all of beauty is an illusion. Mm. It, it reminds me of something Shaban said about the people who wrote the, the Bill of Rights, like the, the founding fathers that you learned all about in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Shaban said that the, those people writing that, they were like a powerful imagination reacting to a history of overwhelming institutional repression, hypocrisy, chicanery, and weakness. It was a document written by men who, like teenagers, knew their enemy intimately and saw in themselves all the potential they possessed to one day become them, to become the enemy. The thing about this story is after they get shot down, that is crushing. But to me, the real crushing, the real where Vonnegut turns the last screw is that he structured the story from the point of view of George and Hazel watching this on TV. Mm-hmm. So you're experiencing it through their experience of being disconnected from this thing. When Vonnegut goes into describing Harrison and them dancing, you, the reader, get to experience this moment where you go into them. Mm-hmm. You, the frame drops away. That's part of what makes it feel so magical. And when, when they fall and you drop back out and you've just been watching it on TV, I think there's a little bit of magic there that Vonnegut's doing because I think... George has left the room when the bad thing happened Mm. and he comes back and Hazel's crying, but she can't remember what she saw. That is like tragic poetry. It's so beautiful and crushing. And it ends on that repeated line from her where she says, gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel, I could tell that one was a doozy. In the concept as well as the rhythm of those sentences, it's just such a perfect kind of... <laughs> Your face is saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. My face is saying that, like, somebody has stabbed the, their knife into my thigh meat to to just show me who's boss and that the world is not a pretty place. <laughs> uh, I'm realizing our, our two reactions to this story are the mirror image of the reaction to a story that you picked last year, Bring Your Own Spoon, Mm. where I was like, this is all just hope. This is all easy. And you were like, you know what? But part of me, I feel like the world is so shit that for somebody to write something like this that I can kind of believe, that that feels real, but is purely hope, gives Mm. me hope. And I was like, no, I need that struggle. And so when I read this that has glimmers of magic and romance, 
but has such tragedy in it, such yeah. bleakness. I feel made new and clean to just see the world more truly. Like I come away from the story totally crushed like you, but each time I read it, I come away a slightly different mix of crushed and hopeful. Like the fact that Harrison Bergeron exists and the fact that the ballerina exists who was going to fight against the system. I think I'm always a myth of Sisyphus person. I'm always somebody in love with the fact that the system, life is going to crush us all. It's just, that's just the way it works. But you can still fly. You still can make that space. Harrison and the ballerina in the story have a moment of beauty. My pick this week is The Darkness Box by Ursula K. Le Guin, published in 1975 in her collection The Wind's Twelve Quarters. This is a story about a kingdom frozen in a moment of time, and it's a moment when two brothers, the king's sons, face each other in battle for all eternity. With armies and griffins and warboats and death, they fight again and again, with the result of the fight immediately dissipating and then the cycle starts over and i think what this moment what this moment is is at the heart of the story and it's a moment that contains so much about the two brothers about the king their father about the land and about about the the way they deal with their present and about the future that they might occupy you know, if the battle is allowed to conclude, if the result is allowed to stick, then then the kingdom will exist in in a reality where either one brother or the other is slain, where one returns home to the king uh, and the other does not and will never. And the king, it seems like what this story has done is is take that reluctance that perhaps comes from the king, perhaps comes from elsewhere, but take that reluctance and make it real in the sense that we can't put off the future forever. And the the king and this story is trying desperately to do that. But of course, of course, this is a story about the moment where it all breaks, just in the way that the decisions we put off and the feelings that we bury always escape into metaphorically resonant objects or ailments then then you know that the same thing happens in this story it and here the object is a box a box filled with darkness that washes up on the shore one day uh, like a memory that keeps surfacing that comes back no matter how hard you try to bury it and once the box appears in this story you know that it must be opened and when that box opens, that is the moment when the kingdom must occupy one of its possible future fates. I'm going to I'm going to narrate my response to this story because I found it useful to help me understand what I was feeling, why I was feeling it, and and the way that I found into the story. When I read it, like the first time I read it, I didn't care about the characters, or at least I felt like the story wasn't really interested in the individual people in the story because they they seem to be portrayed as generic kind of fantasy types prince king witch um familiar they uh, not that it's necessarily uninteresting but it seemed almost purposeful there was something beautiful and also monotonous about the language there was so much less 
about the way she was writing, by which I mean there were so many words that were like ceaseless and sunless and motionless. That, that, like, that was what was jumping out at me when I was reading it, not the people. It was this repetition of this kind of language. And then there was the fact that there was this kind of generic setting of the idea of, of warring brothers and a kingdom. And, and as I was coming to the end of the story, I was thinking, well, what is it that, that Le Guin wants me to be interested in? What is it that she wants me to notice? And like kind of where you came, what you were talking about your reading, I came to the feeling, oh, it's the, the, the idea is the thing of the story, the, which you could read uh, as like you read it, like maybe this idea is like uh, the idea of reluctance or the idea of not being able to move on from something. But for me, it, it like ended up in a very specific place, which was uh, one of the ways that I read the story is it felt like the thing that couldn't move on, the thing that was stuck. It felt like she was just pulling out all of all of fantasy, like a certain kind of fantasy storytelling where you tell the same story over and over again, where every one of these, where the, the trope of fantasy is that you set your story in this ahistorical kind of outside of time place where you have these generic characters fighting the same wars and nothing ever happens. And and suddenly the stockness of, of the characters and things came to life for me and my reading completely changed. Uh, is that what the story is doing? I don't know, but it but it made the story come to life to me when I saw it that way. Yeah, I I like that reading as well. I I wrote down stuckness, stuck living in someone else's world, yeah, where someone yeah. else defines the parameters that the tracks that you must roll on. And I think that part of the reason that works both for real life and for fantasy is that so so many of us feel that kind of constraint feel like we have to perform in the ways that are expected of us and so much fiction ends up reflecting that sometimes and well when it's a when it bothers me is when it's not conscious when when people write the same stories without anything new to add to them without something further to say to deepen the conversation and and there's a a line in it when it says he was tired and sad and he longed for something for what to hear music that ceased to speak to his brother once before the fort they fought he did not know he must obey and i think i think that's that can speak to real life and to stories the same when they fail to to meet your hopes and expectations and so often it's hard to pin down the ways in which your hopes are being thwarted and that's something that this story speaks to really beautifully yeah i think if you chose sentences at random it would be difficult to find writers that sound different than kurt vonnegut and ursula K. Le Guin. <laughs> they are these stories are wrestling with similar ideas of being trapped in someone else's world being trapped mm -hmm. in somebody either insisting consciously, like in Vonnegut's story, this is the way the world must be, and perhaps somewhat unconsciously or consciously, maybe somebody's doing it to them on purpose. It, you know, clearly, Le Guin is doing it to them on purpose. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me that the two different ways that it plays out, that in Vonnegut's story, I believe in those people much more than I believe in Le Guin's characters. Yeah. In, in the way that they're depicted on the page, I can totally read between the lines and see that there are real people inside of the Gwyn story that are unable to escape until perhaps after you turn the last page and life begins right, again so and they much. could be real. 
Um, so much of of what happens happens outside of the the sentences on the page in the story. Yeah, yeah. And you get yeah. that one line where the king says, "Yeah, that box was mine. I threw it away," and it's like, okay, let's just talk about mm-hmm. how and why and right all yeah. of that stuff. Right. Whereas so much of of the characters and the things happen on on Vonnegut's pages. There's all kinds of stuff you can imagine going on, but the 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 crushing beauty that you see and lose all is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I can see the hope in an individual, even for a moment, define the system. Um, and like when there's a bit of hope in the, the idea that at last maybe the darkness has been wrestled with, but it in itself is also a kind of bleak ending where the real joy of the story is one of the brothers is finally going to die. <laughs> yes. Someone is finally going to stay dead, goddammit. And that's the hopeful note that it sounds. And it's, of course, like for me, they're both equally kind of hopeful, bleak stories telling, mm. uh, telling us about the people who get trapped in situations and fight to escape. And sometimes escaping from that trap situation carries with it a similar cost to being stuck. Mm. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, which is about um, the repetition of words that gives it this kind of rhythm. And it it made it feel to me so kind of uh, deliberately, I was going to say parabolic. That's not the right word. No, like a parable, you know, like because you oh. have to, it starts out with the, <laughs> with yes. the boy uh, walking on the beach. One of Vonnegut's story shapes, the, <laughs> the parabola parable. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, it starts out with a boy on the beach who leaves no footsteps in the sand. And so immediately my mind you know, went to the hundreds of sermons I've heard in my life about the story of the guy looking back a- across the beach and the two step sets of footsteps. Right. And, yeah, you know, my favorite part of that story is there's no actual magic involved. Jesus just picked the guy up. It's <laughs> yes. just a physical act. There's no magic. There's no, I mean. So with the with the way that she starts out with that image and the repetition and the rhythm of the sentences and, and yeah, the somewhat kind of bland, archetypical characters, I really felt that the allegorical nature, let's call it, of, of this story and how she was reaching for um and maybe too much you know i i go i'm not sure if if it really landed for me like she was really reaching for the thing that she wanted to say and in some ways i don't know if it's because of the passage of time between now and when it was written or and the or or just you know the kind of reader i am and the kind of writer she is in some ways it kind of felt like clubbing me over the head with it i i i I lean more towards the art the archness and the bleakness of vonnegut and yet there is something very sweet and earnest about this story which i that sticks to me a little earnest is a fascinating word because i i've played with the story in my head whether or not because it's Le Guin and she has a stature in people's minds that that people read this story as as serious. I mean, not that I don't think it's serious, but that is it like an Austin situation where mm-hmm. she knew she was being arch and, and was a bit playful in this. I haven't read enough Le Guin to feel certain of anything. No. Um, but I am I am totally with you. What's on the page certainly seems more 
Yeah, I don't know because she, I was going to say seems less interested in, in fucking around with you, but I'm not <laughs> sure about that. Um, because this this story is fucking with genre in interesting ways. It is. I love these stories in conversation. It felt so Vonnegut in its bleakness about the futility of humans Mm -hmm. because like uh, one of the things i thought when i was describing the language as being dense and the fact that the characters were a bit uninteresting is it felt like she was giving me a landscape painting and one of those landscape paintings where the painter is just as if not more interested in the way sunlight looks on a leaf than it is at the person over at the side Mm -hmm. who's murdering someone who knows whatever it's just all landscape The, the first thing we see is a boy in the landscape the, the soldiers are, are described as occupying the sand, and when they die, when the leader dies, sand gets kicked over him, so he becomes part of the landscape. Her language and her style is giving us a landscape where the people are part of the landscape, but the first image we see that is repeated over and over again is how little effect they have on the landscape. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like there's a sheet of cellophane that's sli- been slid between the landscape and the characters, so they can't truly interact like when you see a cartoon character run and you know it feel it always feels like their foot slides along the floor i kind of get that that sense from this yeah yeah feels for a moment when i when i read this story the first time uh the time is reversing that that what we saw is he's gone and killed his brother and now time is moving back towards the the castle because the griffin comes back to life almost immediately i realized that's just my own subconscious immediately recognizing the world is not working the way it's supposed to what's going on but but basically immediately you understand no 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 no, time is not reversing it is undoing a specific moment like there's something to me very important about the way that she moves people in this story that the prince from his point of view is moving forward to the castle even as the things he's done are being undone and so he moves forward to a set point in time at which it reverses and mm-hmm. he goes back and so the structure begins to feel much less to me like we're going forward or backwards in time but we're spiraling right like which, those little people that come out of the cuckoo clock yeah. to bang the time and then go back in and i think that's that reading that moment where i clicked into that kind of circularity to it that they feel like they're going forward even as they go backwards over and over again went to what you were saying at the very beginning about this idea of reluctance or an inability to deal with something the sense that this kind of structure is so right for getting at a feeling of despair and the fact that the things that this story turns on the battle between the brothers and the darkness in the box are things that were exiled. The brother was sent away to another land. He wasn't supposed to come back, and the box was cast into the ocean by the king. There was something you said uh, this morning, I think, about how the only way not to be overwhelmed by emotions was to learn to not be ashamed of them. And that, when you said that to me this morning, I was like, oh my God, the image at the end of the story of how the prince, who now has the box of darkness, it started to trickle out around him. And rather than shutting it, he opens it 
and just pours it out into the world and then does over battle. Over his faith. Yeah, over his that's faith. The li- that's the moment, that's the image that really lands the story right, for yeah. me. When- yeah, it's literally facing it. He's literally, <laughs> literally putting his face into the darkness <laughs> and then wrestling with it. And that's what breaks the cycle, is yeah. somebody in the story not shedding away the darkness. Thanks for listening, readers. We have not managed to discuss all of the important facets of these stories. Yeah, nor did we discuss all of the stories that exist. One day, I think we might. We might manage that. Um, well, the- I don't think, I think math, I think there's a fairly straightforward mathematical proof. What about that all? That we will not. Just all the good ones. I think we could manage that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, if you have uh, thoughts that you want to share with us or recommendations for sto- good stories, obviously, that we wanted, we could discuss in future episodes. Yes, not just any story you happen to run into in the world. Make <laughs> it a good one. Then you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storyological. That's story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook if you have not deleted it. <laughs> uh, we are at facebook.com slash storylogical. And if you have enjoyed this episode, then please head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review because that helps other people find us. And we love it when that happens. Uh, and if you really love this episode... You can head over to our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash storylogical, uh, where you can uh, support us at $1, $2, $3, $100. Probably don't do that. We would be concerned <laughs> about you. We're not providing that much value to the world. <laughs> and if you support at the $3 mark, then you will get Chris's newsletter where Chris reviews everything each month um, and continuing uh, our quest to to conquer the world of stories. <laughs> this month, this month, among the things that he reviews are uh, Deadpool. That's definitely one not to miss. <laughs> I totally didn't really mean to, but I totally did a Vonnegut thing in that Deadpool review where I where the fact that I repeat a line at the end of that review that I said at the beginning just makes it feel doubly <laughs> deadening, <laughs> which is the way I felt. It was an accurate representation of my experience of that film. Anyway, um, what do we do next? Um, yes. So, and for show notes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, links to past episodes, uh, including interviews. We just put one up couple weeks ago with Sophia Samatar, which is pretty amazing, as she is pretty amazing, and she was wonderful to chat with. You can find that and many other things at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. So uh, what I was yes. going to say was... Okay, was, where's Anderson? So we yes. had a, a Wes Anderson season in our house last week. Five movies, five days, and I went into it thinking... Okay, well, Grand Budapest is my favorite. Um, then Moonrise Kingdom, then Royal Tannenbaums, and then there were two that I hadn't seen, the Darjeeling Limited and the Life Aquatic. Yes, Aquatic. But aquatic. Aquatic. I came out of it yes. with a lot more love for the Royal Tannenbaums than I thought I was going to have or that I remembered mm. having the first time I saw it. And I think it's because that was the first movie I saw by him 
And when I saw it, I was sort of bewildered and like, what is even happening in this thing? I don't, I've never seen a movie like this before. It was very, yeah, I'd never seen an indie movie basically in 2001. <laughs> I was like, where's the superhero? I don't know. Uh, you saw movies without superheroes. <laughs> right, but I didn't see, I hadn't seen many without, uh, with, I don't know, what is the right word? I hadn't seen many. With such artificiality? Such? I, yeah, I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with the range of what could be done, like the, Exactly, the level of artifice that could be presented as obvious to an audience and yet still be enjoyable. And my impression of movies was we were supposed to kind of forget we were watching a movie and it should be as real or feel like we were part of it as possible. Whereas with a, with the World Tannenbaums and a lot of Wes Anderson's movies, you kind of feel a bit like you're spying through a peep, into a peep show. It's a little bit illicit. Um, yes, like a Nickelodeon. That's what they were called. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy how his movies are as demonstrative of artifice as they are. Um, they're not exactly meta. They're meta in the sense that it, it we are watching a story that knows it's a story. And often the story we're watching, like in Grand Budapest Hotel, is a story inside of a story inside of a story. Mm -hmm. But they're not meta in that way where the characters seem to be fighting, like consciously fighting against the narrative they're in. Or no. I have a sense is because, uh, at least in Wes's best films, I think the thing is that his films are self-aware, but his characters are almost never self-aware. <laughs> yes. They are the opposite of self-aware. <laughs> yeah, they are, they are emotionally blinkered, uh, tragic specimens. I often think, I think like of Royal Tenenbaum, they're so wrapped up in their own story, their, their own artifice. They're so wrapped up in whatever story they're trying to tell about themselves. They don't have time to notice that they're in a story. Right, right. Like the guy, the oldest brother in the Darjeeling Limited, the one who, yeah, yeah. for Owen. the whole movie, yeah, Owen, yeah. whatever his name is in the movie, I don't know. He's got, his whole head is bandaged up. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. He's like, held together <laughs> by held together and... precept and optimism. <laughs> It's one of my friend's favorite sayings. Go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, he's he's all bandaged up in a way that kind of looks a little bit like a horse's bridle that's wearing blinkers, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's literally like in the idea that your mind is your world. His, you know, his whole world is held together <laughs> trying to maintain this mindset. Oh, one of the things I loved about that older brother character who was organizing everything as Wes Anderson's films almost always feature one character who you could read a bit as a Wes Anderson stand-in, as someone who is attempting in the movie to orchestrate the events of the movie to their liking and generally failing. Um, but I love, like, in, Darje in Darjeeling Limited, when they finally reach their mom, mm. she takes over his role. He's where he learned <laughs> right? all of that orchestration right. from, and she's repeating the same call to, call to arms, I don't know, the same call and response that he had been repeating through the whole movie. And suddenly, if you had been annoyed with him, throughout the movie that that one moment you're like oh yeah okay yeah i feel yeah, you yeah, man. that poor kid is yeah. like learned at his mother's knee and then she abandoned them and his whole method for trying to take care of his family and his brothers is to adopt her persona mm -hmm. and i'm like mm -mm. yeah that did not work so work out so well 